We will now um, turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We will be reading, our, our, our text comes from Luke 16, the verses 19 to 31. We're going to read a little bit before that, starting at verse 9, but even before that, we're going to back up to the start of chapter 15, just to get a bit of a feel for what is happening in Luke's gospel. Starting at, if we just read the first two verses of chapter 15, it says that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. But also the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we see that in the context, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling that Jesus is meeting with tax collectors and sinners. And in response, Jesus tells three different parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son, all to show that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. But then at the start of chapter 16, he tells another parable, but this one is to his disciples. We, say, we see that he also said to his disciples, This is the parable of the dishonest manager, and the the main point of the parable is is if evil people, if if a dishonest manager, if he's going to use the earthly wealth that's available to him to invest for his future, how much more should the people of God be using their earthly wealth to invest for their future? So we're going to pick up in verse 9 of chapter 16 and carry on to the end of the chapter. Here Jesus tells us the meaning of the parable. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, That's the wealth of this world. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who is going to entrust to you the true riches? The riches of heaven. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Here begins our text. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The text for our sermon is Luke 16, the verses 19 to 31. We're not going to read this again, but I'd encourage you all to turn with me there, because we're going to be referring to the passage throughout the sermon. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to introduce you to Phil. Phil is a Pharisee. Now, before you get too wary about Phil for being a Pharisee, I want to assure you that Phil is well-respected by all his neighbors. He's well res- a well-respected member in the synagogue. He wears his suit and tie to church. He always always carefully ties his income for his church contribution. And being a Pharisee, Phil is what we would call today a lifelong elder. Phil knows his Bible inside and out and his prayers. Man, Phil can pray such eloquent, such such deep and and spiritual-sounding prayers. Everyone respects Phil the Pharisee. Now recently, Phil has heard about this new teacher, Jesus, and he wants to see for himself what Jesus is all about, what he is teaching. But what Phil sees from Jesus is shocking to him. Phil eats, or sorry, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, those people whose actions bring dishonor upon the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And now Jesus drops a bombshell on Phil just before our text, in verse 13. Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What? Phil scoffs. Turning to his friend, he begins to ridicule Jesus. Who does this Jesus think he is? 
Doesn't he know what, what we all know, that health and wealth are an indicator of how pleased God is with you? What does this Jesus know? He's just a, a simple poor man seeking to rock the boat. You see, as verse 14 says, the Pharisees were lovers of money. They were idolaters. And yet they, they couldn't openly embrace their idolatry, their selfish idolatry, while still maintaining their, their respect, their prestige in the religious community. So what did the Pharisees do? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 15. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. The Pharisees, they justified themselves before men. How did they do this? Well, in a different gospel, in Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus called them out. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe your mint, your dill, your cumin, meaning every part of the law that people can see, those parts of the law you keep. But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Because the Pharisees tithed their money so faithfully, and because they were rich, remember, the Pharisees believed their wealth indicated that God was pleased with them. Because they were wealthy and because they tithed faithfully, it looked like God was pleased with the Pharisees to, to all that surrounded them. It looked like they were faithfully following God. But really, the Pharisees' religion was an empty husk because they were idolaters. The Pharisees were in serious trouble. Sure, they looked good before men, but God knew their heart. The way they religiously justified their idolatry, it was an abomination to God. And so Jesus exhorts them with the parable the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the same message also comes to us today, brothers and sisters, under this theme. Because the rich man and Lazarus' eternal destinies are irreversible, Jesus exhorts us to be faithful. Because their eternal destinies are irreversible, Jesus exhorts us to be faithful. We'll see that Jesus is doing three different things in this parable. First, he warns us against selfishness and self-justification. Second, Jesus also calls us to repentance and faith. And finally, Jesus also encourages us with the hope of heaven. So first of all, Jesus is warning us against selfishness and self-justification. If we look at verse 19, Jesus starts by saying, once upon a time, now, of course, Jesus doesn't actually say once upon a time, but Jesus is telling a parable. And the genre of, of a parable, it would have alerted his original listeners that Jesus is not telling a story that happened in real history. A parable, it teaches a lesson, and this means that not every detail is supposed to teach us something specific about heaven and hell. So, once upon a time, says Jesus, there was a, a rich man who was dressed in the latest designer clothes and who feasted sumptuously, he partied it up Sunday to Saturday. 
we look at verse 19, the word purple, this refers to the rich man's his expensive outer garment. After all, purple was the color that kings would wear. Now, the word fine linen, this refers to the rich man's custom-made undergarment. This man was so rich that he could spring for custom-made designer underwear. Verse 20. And at his gate, there, la- there was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. You want to talk about opposite ends of the economic spectrum? Well, here it is. One man is rich. The other is poor. One is dressed in designer clothes. All that Lazarus was clothed in was his sores. One is partying it up and feasting every day of the week. The other is just longing to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. These men are complete opposites. But congregation, it actually gets worse. If we look at the end of verse 21, it says, Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. We shouldn't be thinking about our our cute little house pets, but more like the wild, scavenging coyotes. Those dogs that would have eaten the body of Jezebel in the Old Testament. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Unable to defend himself, Lazarus has sunk to the lowest of the low. By their observable criteria, many in Jesus' day, including the Pharisees, they would have concluded that the rich man, he was blessed. He was loved by God. But Lazarus was not. Now what happens? Well, verse 22, it says that the poor man died. And he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The poor man, he he died. Did he he starve to death? Did he finally succumb to his sores? Or or perhaps the docks? Did they? Well, we're not actually told how Lazarus died. Neither are we told that he received a burial. Lazarus' body, it would have been exposed to the scavengers. He would have been eaten by wild animals. The final disgrace that he received here on earth. Now our text also says that at the end of verse 22 that the rich man also died and was buried. He, He was honored in his death. He got a burial. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. They say that death is the great equalizer. Rich or poor, Pharisee or tax collector, no matter who you are, unless Christ returns first, all of us are going to die. Our bodies are going to be placed in the ground. We're going to be covered with dirt. And to dirt we will return. It is a humbling reminder, is it not, brothers and sisters? But not only is it a humbling reminder, it is, an impo- it is also an important warning for us. Sure, we're all equal and that all of us die, but there's certainly not equality in the eternal outcomes 
of, of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is honored, ushered into glory. He rests at the side of Abraham. Lazarus is exalted with, with a, a, an honorable position in heaven. But the rich man, he descends into the fire and the torment of Hades. Do you remember watching the news after 9-11 as, as you watched the Twin Towers come down? Or maybe you remember seeing the news and, and seeing those, those images, the, the video reports of the war in Ukraine. It was shocking, some of the atrocities and, and, and horrific, some of the things that were happening. But congregation, if you think that was bad, imagine if you had been there in person. Jesus, in this parable, he is painting a picture of hell. If we think that his description is terrible, how much worse is the real thing going to be? Now, Jesus isn't saying, of course, that all poor people are going to go to heaven and that all rich people are going to go to hell. Wealthy Abraham in, our parable, in this parable himself proves the point. He is in heaven. Rather, Jesus is condemning the unfaithful and the selfish, selfish mismanaging of wealth. In verse 19, Jesus, he doesn't critique the rich man for being wealthy. He doesn't even critique the rich man for how he got his wealth. Actually, Jesus doesn't critique the rich man for anything that he did. Rather, it's what he didn't do. His sins of omission. Jesus, or the rich man, he was using his wealth for his own selfish pursuits. He wasn't using his wealth to glorify God or to serve his neighbors. It's not as if he wasn't aware that Lazarus was at his gate. He, he just couldn't be bothered. In verse 24, the rich man, he condemns himself with his own words. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. He knew Lazarus's name. He was aware of Lazarus, but he wouldn't even share the scraps that fell from his table. And as a result, Abraham denied his request in verse 24 that he would send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool his tongue. God is just. Abraham points to God's eternal justice in verse 25. Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. No, rich man, I can't send Lazarus to help you, because you are being punished for your selfish idolatry here on earth. Your actions have consequences, rich man. God is just. And the consequences are permanent. Abraham gives another reason he can't send Lazarus in verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. In other words, congregation, we don't get a mulligan there's no retries after death. 
our eternal destinies of heaven and hell are forever. The rich man must have been quite surprised to find himself in Hades. He had everything put together on earth. He was wealthy. Obviously, God was blessing him. Oh, and you know what? He was one of God's covenant children. You see him cry out for mercy in verse 24 on the basis of his covenantal status. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Father Abraham. Abraham, I'm one of your descendants. I'm part of God's people. I've been circumcised. I've received the covenant sign. You need to have mercy on me, Father Abraham. Abraham acknowledges the rich man's covenant status. You see in verse 25 that he called him child. But brothers and sisters, merely being a a member of the covenant, ticking the, the boxes of outward appearances, it doesn't count towards your eternal destiny. Jesus is warning the Pharisees, just like John the Baptist warned them in Luke 3, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Rather, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus is warning the Pharisees not to rely on outward appearances, making yourself look holy in the eyes of men is an abomination to God if your heart is set on idols. Congregation, the idols of our hearts, it can be anything, can't it? Money, like the Pharisees, or anything else that brings the the comfort, the security, the pleasure that money brings. Brothers and sisters, we're not Pharisees, but the same inclinations affect us today. Jesus wants to warn us not to be complacent in sin and merely content with the opinions of others. How do we pursue idols and then try to justify ourselves in the eyes of men when our actions fall short of God's holy standards? Perhaps we might be justifying our idolatrous love of money with with the catchword busy hey, I've noticed you've missed prayer group over the last number of weeks and I heard your wife complaining that you're hardly at home lately. How's it going? Oh, I'm just so busy at work right now. Now, congregation, I need to be cautious here. And let me state that there's not necessarily a problem with being busy. God does indeed send busy seasons in life. But might it be that our constant busyness is a way that we are trying to justify our pursuit of wealth, our love of possessions. Could it be that busyness is the acceptable Canadian Reformed way, the justifiable before others way, that we pursue idolatry and neglect to serve Christ and his people? How about our self-centered, idolatrous use of time? Congregation, does it maybe happen that sometimes we we selfishly spend our evenings with Netflix or social media and neglect to actively shepherd our children's hearts towards Christ, as we heard it commanded in Deuteronomy 6? And do we maybe justify this by, oh, we send them to a Christian school. 
We send them to catechism classes, of, of course. Yes, our schools and our catechism classes are rich blessings from God, and we can be incredibly thankful for them. But is it possible that we use them to justify our idolatrous use of time while neglecting to spiritually nurture our children? Are we justifying before others unfaithfulness to Jesus? And teens, young adults, and also parents of, of, of teens. I wonder if sometimes we also do not justify the rebellious stage. Everybody goes through that stage, right? It's normal. We sow our wild oats, and they're good covenant children. They'll come back to the faith eventually. Where in God's word do we see this? It's not there. Jesus is warning the Pharisees and us through the rich man that our idolatrous actions here on earth, that they have consequences. We might try to justify them. We might even give religious justification to make ourselves look good before others, but God knows our hearts. Jesus is asking us to evaluate our lives this morning, to see if, if we are faithfully serving him or if we are, in a sense, playing religion, making ourselves look pious before others, maybe perhaps even banking on our covenant status. If that is the case, brothers and sisters, you need to be warned. You need to repent. God will judge eternally those who selfishly live in idolatry, even if they make it look respectable. Be warned. Repent in faith. This is the second thing that Jesus is doing in the parable. He's calling us to repentance and to faith. You may have been asking yourself, because this is what Jesus intends with the parable, am I a rich man or am I a Lazarus? Jesus wants us to ask this question, but then in verses 27 and 28, Jesus also introduces a new character. The rich man, he goes on to say, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Here's the twist, Jesus says. The eternal destinies of the rich man and Lazarus, their destinies are set but there are five brothers who still have time to change their course. Are they going to repent while there's still time to heed the parable? Are you going to repent while there's still time for you to heed God's word? The rich man and, and Abraham, they have a disagreement on how his brothers should be warned. Send Lazarus, the rich man pleads, Maybe if he returns to warn them as a spirit, maybe then my brothers will listen. Maybe then they'll believe. No, says Abraham. Moses and the prophets, this is a way of referring to the Old Testament. Moses and the prophets, these are enough. But the rich man, he disagrees. Hearing the Old Testament, it wasn't enough for him, was it? But take careful note of what Abraham says in verse 31. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The problem for the rich man and the five brothers, it isn't a lack of information. The Old Testament, it contained everything that they needed to know God's will. Moses wrote extensively on how the poor were to be treated, that they were not to be abused. No, the problem for the rich man and the Pharisees, it lay with their will. They knew what God required, but their idolatrous, selfish hearts, they refused to submit to God's law. And congregation, nothing, not not supernatural experiences, not visions, not dreams, nothing except the Spirit of God working through the Word can soften our stubborn and idolatrous hearts, not even witnessing a resurrection. Did you notice how Abraham, he, he ups the ante in verse 31. The rich man, he wanted him to send Lazarus as a spirit. But Abraham explains that that, that would be pointless. They won't even listen if somebody would rise from the dead. And by saying this, Jesus is alluding to his upcoming resurrection. When the guards reported how Jesus rose from the dead, do you remember what was their response? The scribes and the Pharisees, together with the Romans, they fabricated a lie, trying to deceive others and to cover up Jesus' resurrection. Do you see how hard the natural human heart is. These people knew. They knew that Jesus, whom they saw dead on the cross, that he had risen from the dead, and yet they refused to believe in him. That is how hard the human heart is. The congregation, it shows us how thankful we should be. Thankful to God that he does indeed soften human hearts. Even a resurrection Witnessing a resurrection won't work faith and repentance. But God's Holy Spirit does. He does so by using the word. This means that when we read our Bibles, our response seals our eternal destiny. Every time we open God's book, we stand before the gates of heaven and hell. That is how serious it is, congregation, to hear God's word. This isn't like reading a mere novel. And that is because only God's word calls us to change. And only God's word, it it truly gives us the reason and the motivation to change. The reason is Jesus. The reason the Pharisees rejected what the Old Testament said about how to treat the poor, how to use their money, was because in their idolatry, they rejected what the Old Testament said about Jesus. Do you remember how on the road to to Emmaus, Jesus explained to the two men that the the Christ had to suffer and then into, into glory? How did he explain that? Luke 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The entire Old Testament, it witnesses to Jesus. Ultimately, the Pharisees' same stubborn hearts that refused to obey the Old Testament law. These hearts also refused to accept Jesus. And the Old Testament's witness to Jesus as the hope of Israel. In this parable, 
Jesus is not only calling the Pharisees to repentance from their idolatry. In verse 31, Jesus also alludes to the resurrection and how they must have faith in him. Only by faith in Jesus, only by believing in Christ, is there hope for eternal life. That is the third point that Jesus wants to make with our parable. He, excuse me, he also wants to encourage us with the hope of heaven. As the Old Testament and the rest of God's word is open, we stand before the gates of heaven and hell because they speak about Jesus. The Bible tells us how Jesus was the ultimate poor person. Yes, he was physically poor. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but but Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. But congregation, we should be aware that in the Bible, especially in Luke, being poor doesn't just mean poverty. It also means being afflicted and being oppressed. A person was poor because others had despised God's law. And in their distress, the poor and the afflicted, they they humbly turn to God in prayer. And congregation, we see this so clearly on the cross, do we not? Not only was Jesus financially poor, not only did Jesus give himself completely to serve others during his earthly ministry, but on the cross, we see that Jesus was poor in the sense that he was afflicted. Like Lazarus in our text, Jesus was scorned by mankind. He was was despised by people. Like Lazarus, Jesus was without clothing because his clothes were taken from him. Like Lazarus in our text, Jesus was in physical agony. He hung on that Roman cross. He was surrounded not by physical dogs like Lazarus, But as Psalm 22 prophesies about him, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. Like Lazarus, Jesus was poor in the complete sense of the word. He was poor and he was afflicted. And congregation, he was also perfect because in his affliction, he also turned to God in prayer. He prayed Psalm 22, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Jesus was morally perfect as a poor person. A congregation that is such good news for us, is it not? Because have we not often lived selfish, idolatrous lives like the rich man? But like those five brothers, you are called to repent. You are called to believe the word that you hear today. Since Jesus lived the right, a righteous life as a poor and afflicted person, you can believe in him. You can repent of your idolatry, turn to him in faith, and be saved. God's word is directing you to Christ because when you embrace him in faith, his perfect and righteous life as a poor person, it is imputed to your account. God sees you through the lens of Christ as humble, meek, as, as poor, as someone who perfectly relies on and trusts in God. So brothers and sisters, believe in Christ and be encouraged when you do believe 
Be encouraged with the hope of heaven. We've gone through the parable now. We've been warned by the rich man's fate. We've seen how it is eternal, unchangeable. And as we've identified with the five brothers, we've, Jesus has also exhorted us to repentance and faith. But brothers and sisters, in one way or another, all of us who are faithful Christians are also like Lazarus. Jesus said that all who follow him would suffer and be persecuted. As we look at the world around us today, the threat of persecution is certainly increasing, is it not? I want to end by giving you hope. Hope, especially for those who have suffered grievously at the hands of others, those who are oppressed like Lazarus. Reflect again on the, on, on the horrific situation that Lazarus faced. Diseased, starving, ridiculed, tormented by those hated dogs. And brothers and sisters, not only is Lazarus dehumanized, in our text, not once does he even speak. Lazarus has no voice. He suffers alone and in silence. And we might ask, where is God in the midst of all of this? Brothers and sisters, please hold on to this detail. Jesus does this in no other parable except here. Jesus gives Lazarus a name. The rich man receives no name because he is not known by God. But Lazarus does. To have a name, it means that you matter to someone. Jesus sees and he values Lazarus. Lazarus suffered alone and in silence, but God saw and God cared. Do you know what Lazarus means? Lazarus means helped by God. Though Lazarus suffered in silence, he suffered in reliance upon God. Because unlike the rich man, Lazarus knew and he trusted the promises of God's word. He knew his Old Testament. He knew that God is a shield and a stronghold to the poor and the oppressed. And so he humbly and patiently waited for his God to act. Brothers and sisters, even though you can sometimes not see God working through your sufferings, even though you might suffer in silence and in shame like Lazarus, though there may be rich and powerful people who oppress you, wait for the Lord. Certainly, it, it is not easy. Sometimes, maybe even often, it might seem like God is not listening, that maybe he doesn't care, but trust in him. Wait for him. God's word records how he has repeatedly cared for and loved the poor and the afflicted. Wait for him. Your name is known to him. He has written your name in his book. He has engraved it on the palm of his hands, which means that there is no way he can ever forget you. There will be justice rendered against your oppressors. There will be a reversal. If it does not happen in this life, God has promised 
with his unbreakable and unchangeable word that this reversal will take place in the life to come. And that reversal will be unchangeable also for you. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage and wait for the Lord. Amen.